everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the network, and each week we scour the internet looking for interesting new books. And this week I'm very pleased to say that we have Mary Eberstadt on the show, and we'll be talking about her fascinating book, How the West Really Lost God. Uh, this book is about what is sometimes called secularization. It's something that I've followed pretty closely myself for, for many years now. There's been a lot of debate about its extent and the reasons behind it, Mary uh, has something new to say, which is an unusual thing in this field, as I think Mary will agree and we'll talk about. But I really enjoyed reading the book, and I encourage people to go out and buy it and read it. So, uh, Mary, congratulations on the appearance of the book. Thank you for writing it, and welcome to the New Books Network. Oh, thanks, Marshall. Thanks for that nice introduction, too. Yeah. Could you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself? Oh, sure. I'm a senior fellow with the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C., and I'm the author of several books, of which this is the latest. Uh, the two previous before that were Adam and Eve After the Pill, which was a nonfiction book about the sexual revolution, and before that, a work of fiction called The Loser Letters, A Comic Tale of Life, Death, and Atheism. <laughs> That's a funny title, I'll say that. So tell us tell us why you wrote How the West Really Lost God. I mean, there are a lot of books in this field, so I, I'm very interested in what you have to say. Well, the puzzle of secularization in the West is a great intellectual puzzle. And over the years, especially since Nietzsche wrote his famous parable, The Madman, saying that God is dead, lots of people have pushed around the pieces of the puzzle uh, to try and figure out why it is that so many Western men and women are less religious than they were, say, 100 or 200 years ago. Now, there's a dispute about scholars, or sorry, among scholars, about just this, because some people deny the idea that secularization even exists. In the book, I think I marshal a lot of evidence to show that, in fact, it does. In fact, if you measure by survey data or other kinds of empirical evidence presented in the book, you can see a marked fall-off in church attendance in the Western world during the past couple of centuries, and with increasing velocity today, I would argue. So the big question hanging over all of this data is, why? Why did so many people decide in so many ways to live without God or to live without the Christian churches, being as big a presence in their lives, etc. Why did it happen? There have been a number of conventional answers to that question, and I lay them out in the book and show why they are insufficient. I think that all along, something has been missing from this great jigsaw puzzle, and that's what I try to put on the table uh, with this book. But going back to those conventional explanations, we could kind of run through those quickly. Yeah, that would like, be great, yeah. What's, what's missing? Um, well, one conventional explanation, and probably the most popular conventional explanation for the decline of Western Christianity, goes something like this. As people get better educated and more prosperous, they realize that they can live without God. Prosperity and money um, drive out belief in the deity. And this has a kind of surface appeal, doesn't it? Because we tend to think that increasing sophistication... Um, makes people less needful of um, the consolations of religion. But the problem, Marshall, is that this explanation 
doesn't hold up and is in fact refuted uh, by empiricism itself. And what I mean by that is that if the explanation from prosperity were correct, if it correctly predicted who was religious, then we would not see the kinds of patterns that we see today. In the United States today, to take one example, the upper third of the socioeconomic ladder is more likely to believe in God and more likely to go to church than the bottom third. And I need to emphasize that because many people find that a counterintuitive finding, um, but I'm relying on several studies to make that claim, and the footnotes are all in the book. Not only is this true in the United States, but it was also true in Victorian England, which was a time of great religious revival. In Victorian England, it was similarly, generally speaking, the upper classes and not the lower classes that were populating all of those newly built churches. So why is this important for secularization theory? It's important because it means that prosperity alone does not explain the fall-off in church attendance and religious belief in the Western world. Money alone doesn't drive out God, contrary to what people have uh, said from the days of Karl Marx onward. Um, religion is not strictly a function of the lower classes. In fact, it's more likely to be a function of the upper classes. So that explanation for the fall-off in church attendance doesn't hold up. So then what do you put in its place? Well, what I argue in the book is that something has been missing from this great jigsaw puzzle all along, and the missing piece is the family and the role of the family uh, in religious belief. Now, conventionally, what sociologists have thought is that if you want to talk about the relationship between the family and the church, it goes exactly like this. As people believe less, and practice less, there are changes in the family. And let me put that in a causal way. Changes in religion cause changes in the family. Religious decline, Christian religious decline, causes families to be, say, smaller, more fractured, um, <clears throat> allows for a rise in divorce and out-of-wedlock births and things like that. In other words, to put the point starkly, in the conventional understanding Religion is in the driver's seat, and it drives changes in the family. And this is a one-way causal relationship as conventionally understood. And you can find this all over the scholarly literature. People um, say quite unthinkingly, for example, secularization causes a lowering of the birth rate, um, and things like that. So the point is that's the way the relationship has been understood, and I think there is another way of understanding it that makes more sense of the facts. And what way is that? What I argue is that it makes more sense of the facts to see the relationship between the church and the family as a two-way street and not a one-way street. And what I mean by that is that changes in the family, it can be argued, are also driving changes in religiosity. The reason that's important is that, again, the conventional storyline has always held that the disappearance of Christianity would be inevitable. This is what Nietzsche thought. This is what most of the titans of sociology thought. They had different reasons for believing that Christianity would ultimately disappear. But the idea that its disappearance was inevitable has been something that 
I think even religious believers have often accepted unthinkingly. So if the theory of my book is right, uh, on the other hand, then this whole idea of inevitability disappears because what I'm saying in the book is that, look, it's changes in the way people live today that are driving changes in things like church going. And just to give you a few concrete examples of what I'm talking about, Marshall. So, for instance, um, consider, consider the situation of divorce and the children of divorce, which very often means on a perfectly you know, domestic plane that kids are spending every other weekend with different parents. That alone interrupts the transmission belt that the family has been for religious teaching uh, because kids are in different places. They're not likely to have the same ongoing institutional involvement in the churches. That's one very small example. There are examples that range all the way up to um, the highly conceptual that I explore in the book about the ways in which the fractured modern family interferes with religious practice and religious belief. For example, um, if you are a child of divorce, if you have never known in your life uh, the presence of a loving uh, male father figure in your house, as millions of kids don't these days, then the very idea of God the Father, which is a conventional idea that Judaism and then Christianity taught, God the Father doesn't make as much sense to you as it did to an illiterate uh, serf in the Middle Ages, say, who at least was literate in family terms and knew what that image was supposed to convey. So that is one example, but I think in its way a profound example of how family changes interfere with people even understanding the Christian message. Christianity is an intensely familial religion. This is a religion that not only teaches God the Father, but is centered on a holy family. Um, it's a religion that starts with the birth of a baby. As more and more Western people live in these fractured familial ways and have less experience of all these things, they find it just that much harder, just that much conceptually more difficult to understand certain pretty basic things about the Christian message. I'm not saying that's insurmountable, but I'm saying there are conceptual difficulties uh, that have been put up by the uh, atomized Western family to understanding what were always understandable things until we lived with these family changes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, that makes, good, that makes good sense. Uh, one thing I would note is that the first demographic transition, and this is uh, uh, just to just to summarize, it's it's a, a decrease in mortality uh, and also a decrease in the birth rate. Does precede mass secularization, as far as I know. I mean, the the, the first demographic transition occurs in the late 18th and 19th century, and this is before secularization occurs. And the, and the reasons historians generally give for it is that it was more expensive to have children, and so people put off fertility and had fewer children, um, and uh, therefore families became uh, some, paradoxically somewhat smaller. We think of Victorian families as very large, and some of them were, but the general tendency was for families to become smaller because they were having fewer children. What, what was it... Um, is there any evidence that the divorce rate and secularization are 
correlated? Because that would seem to be a piece of evidence, a kind of uh, arrow in your quiver. Yeah, I think I try to look at the big picture here, mm-hmm. and and I'm not trying to play social scientist when I'm not, but I'm taking a step back and looking at the big picture. I think what tracks is what you started, what you just observed. Um, first, we have the fall off in birth rates, and I argue in the book that this alone has a profound effect on religiosity because, again, getting back to the idea of the the sacred Christ child. Nowadays, if you are in Western Europe, you have a pretty good chance, if you're a woman, of reaching your 20s without even holding a baby because there are so few of them. Mm-hmm. A world in which people have so much less contact with babies and more than babies, the rhythms of life and death. Um, we institutionalize everything now, don't we? We have daycare, we have nursing homes. People are insulated from these rhythms in a way that they've never been before. So the fact that Christianity, like other religions, has existed to help people cope with those rhythms, to help them make sense of those rhythms, means that in in a world where we are artificially isolated, as we never have been before, um, we're not going to respond to those rhythms the same way. The Christian message, in turn, is not going to make the sense that it once made. There's a, the old saying, Marshall, you know, that it's uh, hard, <clears throat> there's no atheist in a foxhole, <laughs> um, which is a kind of um, quickie endorsement of the point that I'm making here. There are things about being a human being that drive people to religion. Birth can do that. A lot of people will say that having a baby was the most uh, intense transcendental experience of their lives. Death can do that. Um, that's what the atheist in a foxhole saying means. Uh, it's hard to be convinced that you're just a collection of random atoms when you're standing in front of uh, an open grave, for example. So the fact that, again, we have modern lives that are structured to keep us from feeling these things as intensely or that we are less likely to encounter them Um, in an age when people have smaller families and fractured families and institutionalized variants of, or sorry, institutionalized substitutes for the family, we are less likely, again, to feel the pull of Christian religion as the people before us did. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, I I guess I see what what you mean, and what you mentioned about divorce earlier is true in my own case. I come from a family that was, my mother and father were divorced, and before they got divorced, uh, I was very small at the time. We did go to church together. Uh, after the divorce, we didn't go to church at all. Um, and partially for the reason you mentioned, because I, I would occasionally go visit my father, not very often, but my mother really didn't feel the need to go to church if the whole family couldn't go. I think she was a little bit ashamed, to be honest with you. Um, we did go occasionally, though, I should say that. Uh, so I can certainly I can certainly see how that change in family structure or decline in the family, if you will, does, does lead one to move away from the, the church itself. But I, I also, I guess I would want to talk you to talk a little bit about the ways in which uh, churches used to help families. And in an era of a sort of parceled out institutionalization of pretty much every need that they don't really serve that function anymore. If you yeah, follow me. I yeah. Have, yeah. Yes. I, I have a chapter in the book called assisted suicide, um, assisted religious suicide, I should say. And, 
what I talk about is what I think has been a um, pretty unattended and important phenomenon, which is that, you know, beginning in the 1960s with the attempt to make some kind of accommodation with the sexual revolution, which is a very important, um, you know, part of the wallpaper to all of this. A lot of churches, primarily the Protestant churches, um, tried to get with the times, and they tried to water down the unwanted parts of the Christian moral code, especially the parts that everybody knows, you know, divorce, um, and all of that, all of the unwanted uh, sexual morality teachings of the moral code. And the weird thing that's happened, and the important thing that's happened, is that the churches that tried that are the churches that are in the most dire straits today. I'm talking the churches of the the Protestant mainline uh, and other churches that were really just trying to have Christianity with a you know more human face. Um, but what happened to them was, in the process of doing that, they jettisoned the importance of the family because it turns out that unwanted moral code was part of what was holding families together and allowing them to be the transmission belts for the churches in the first place. So this is an ironic and sad story where, you know, good intentions resulted in the institutional destruction of uh, a lot of these churches, and the numbers bear this out. A hundred years from now, there are whole denominations that exist now that will not uh, in all likelihood, be anywhere on earth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, I think this is because those denominations did not understand how critical the family was, holding the family together, building the family, uh, shoring up the family, telling the family that the kinds of sacrifices that are involved in family life are worthy and important. All of this sort of stuff went out the window um, as some churches became more progressive. And to say that is not to say that, say, the Catholic Church hasn't also suffered decline. Um, But it is to observe that within Protestantism itself, the denominations that are most vibrant are those with the, the strictest moral codes. And that's partly because those codes protect the family and encourage the family to carry on. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I I would quite agree with you about the ways in which, especially mainline Protestantism, has a kind of sunk its own ship by accommodating believers. I would I would trace it to something actually quite a little bit earlier than you do, and that is, and this is another paradox of unintended consequence. I think that um, there's pretty good evidence that once. Uh, European countries in the United States in the 18th century promulgated religious toleration that and told everybody to choose their own religion. It didn't really matter which one. That that withdrawal of kind of authority or support uh, sent a message to people that religion really didn't matter very much. And you see great uh, great efforts on the part of many different denominations to appeal to uh, parishioners and uh, attendants to appeal to the religious. And they did that by watering things down until, you know, I'm a Lutheran and I call it bake sale Lutheranism. <laughs> that, as far as I can tell, that's pretty much what we do. Is, is, I don't really go to Lutheran church anymore. I'm part of a different spiritual community, but uh, that's kind of what it became is that God really, nobody told you. The basic message of, of mainline Protestant Christianity today is be nice. Mm-hmm. That, that's pretty much it, full stop. They're not going to tell yeah, you. Yeah, and the, the problem with the message from an institutional point of view is that it's 
if that's all you're telling people, then it's not going to take them very long to figure out that they can just be nice sitting on their couch at home. Yeah, that's pretty much right. Or if they don't like the brand of be nice you have, they can go next door to the Episcopalians who are also being nice. Or I, I don't know who else is being nice these days. But it's not. It's not. <laughs> it's it's a great. Um, it's, I think individualization is really what one banner you could put it under because once the state – and it's funny because if you look at uh, the late 18th century, uh, look at um, debates about toleration in the 18th century, especially in England, this is just what people who were against toleration said. They said that what you will have as a result of this is um, uh, a religion. You will have people becoming unreligious as a result of this. If they're not basically compelled by, by sort of force of – in law in their case, then they will become – they, they will not be religious anymore and they will suffer. Um, and in a weird way, they were right. Uh, because, I mean, if, I think if you look around today, you know, church attends the United States. It's, it's funny about church attends the United States. They, they do uh, surveys and they say that I think it's something like 40% attend regularly. But then actually they count people in pews and it turns out it's only 20. So what we know about that is people think they should be going to church but aren't. <laughs> yes, people lie about yeah. going to church. Right. It's they, really they, interesting they really thing. Think, they, they think but you know, there's another <laughs> aspect of this, Marshall, that I think has been also un- under-attended, um, and that is, you know, all along, that strict moral code, and I think this is true not only of Christianity, but also one can easily think of other religions to which it applies. That code, even as it puts off some people, um, draws in other people. We see this in the case of Christianity uh, starkly at the end of the Roman Empire when we have uh, the pagans getting to do all their usual things, I mean, infanticide and bestiality and et cetera, et cetera. Um, they have a very loose sexual moral code. And along comes the early church fathers to say, no, the Christians can't do this. The pagans can do X and Y, and you can't do X and Y, and you also can't do Z and A and B. And this very strict moral code developed uh, that was resented, of course, by, by people who were not Christians. Because people don't like being told they're wrong, among other things. Mm-hmm. And that's what the Christian moral code says. It says a lot of you are really wrong out there. But what also happened was that that same code, something about the purity of it, something about the consistency of it, has appealed to people over time and has been itself a source of some of the greatest converts in the history of the church. And so that unseen gravitational pull of the same moral code that's simultaneously repelling some people and drawing others in is another dynamic that I try to get at in the book, because I think that is part of the dynamic of orthodoxy itself and why orthodoxy endures when just having bake sale Christianity, as you put it, does not. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're right. Again, I, I won't be too autobiographical. I am a part of a spiritual community, and we meet often. Um, and, and we do have a moral code. There's no doubt about it. It's a hard one. And it's hard. To, and we talk about it a lot. Uh, it, 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 and, and, and it is a kind of a it's, you know, I want to say it's work, and it kind of is. You really have to think about what you do a lot. And I don't think most people have time for this. Um, I don't do you mean do. a Christian moral community? Yeah, or it's more or less. I would say it's a more or less Christian moral community, yes. Um, that's exactly right. And we do get together quite often, and we talk about these things, and we and we hold each other. You know, we, we are asked to examine ourselves and what we do and our relation to God and so on and so forth. So my point is is that I do see what you mean about the kind of um, appeal of, of orthodoxy, especially in a context where everything seems to be arbitrary. 
Uh, and I yes, know, and in my own life, I felt that arbitrariness, and I just had, didn't have any purpose, and I didn't know what I think. Now, I'm not saying that's for everybody. It's just like I felt lost. It's like everything was okay. I could do everything, but it didn't seem like I was getting what I wanted. I needed structure. I guess I was like a little kid. I don't know how to put it, but it worked for me. <laughs> yeah, you see this now in an institutional way. Uh, at a moment when a lot of people would argue uh, traditional Christianity is on the defensive in the public square. You know, it's never been a better time to throw rocks at Christians in America than it is right now. But at the same time, simultaneously you see that it is the orthodox movements that are most galvanized. And now I'll step outside of Christianity to say, look at orthodox Judaism Mm -hmm. in the United States and Israel, or look at, uh, to go back to Christianity, within the Catholic Church, unquestionably the most successful movements right now are the most orthodox. This is true whether you're talking about uh, the, the Dominican order, for example, which has seen a rise in vocations in the eastern United States, really incredible at a time when a lot of people can't imagine anybody uh, becoming um, a brother. Um, it's when the Dominicans are orthodox. You see this uh, if you're talking about the much maligned Opus Dei movement, which is a movement of lay Orthodox people, which unfortunately is nothing like what Dan Brown says it's like. Um, but it is a movement, not only here, but of course in Europe and elsewhere, of people who are reacting the way you say you reacted. They're reacting to the chaos and arbitrariness around them and trying to find something that makes sense. Orthodoxy makes sense. This is also true of other movements like Comunione, Liberazione, and uh, on and on I could go to make the point that it is not, um, you know, uh, I don't want to malign anybody here. It is not the guitar-playing um, <laughs> former hippies yeah, right. who are yeah. bringing in no. the converts these days. And the orders right. within the church that went down that road are also in the same straits as mainline Protestantism. Yeah. I so mean, I, once again, orthodoxy makes sense it's, it's to funny, some people. It's funny you mentioned this, because my, uh, my sister, of course, who grew up with me, and my dad left, and, and we stopped going to church, basically. Uh, we did go to Lutheran church sometimes. But um, it, uh, she... Uh, yeah, I joined this... Uh, I would call it a religious movement, I guess. And um, you know, We're not a sector of culture or anything like that. I'm not going to be specific, though. And she, however... Uh, it went from bake sale Lutheranism to uh, full-scale, full-blown involvement in the church Catholicism. I mean, Martin Luther rolled over in his grave. <laughs> My sister, <laughs> who who is like really into her church. I mean, totally. She's a big Catholic and does all the stuff. And, you know, it's, it's, it's really quite remarkable um, that the two of us have come um, to the – I mean, we're well-educated people. We're not – you know, I'm, I wouldn't – I'm not the brightest guy on earth. But, you know, I, I know what's what. And, and she does too, but she's found her way to this as, as well, uh, which so I find. So one of the things I want to kind of talk to you about a little bit is the issue of divorce. And um, do you find that is so, so if we use this as a kind of a metric for family uh, solidity, are, are communities that are Orthodox, do they have, uh, I mean, you may not know this, have lower divorce rates than the sort of general population or higher? or? Yeah, my, my impression is that that is true, but I don't have the data right in front of me. But it makes sense. It makes sense um, intuitively that when a family stays together, they are a more effective transmission belt. I keep coming back to that mechanized image because I think it works mm-hmm. for religion, for religious teaching. The thing about the spiritual movements, the interesting thing, and I get into this in the book, is that you know a lot of people say, well, it's not that people are 
less religious. It's that they're more spiritual. There's more free-floating spirituality. But the thing is, that kind of religiosity does not reproduce itself. Yeah, that's true. Generally speaking, literally or figuratively, you can go stand at Stonehenge all you want, um, you know, in a Druid uh, uniform or whatever people do. And I'm not knocking that, but I'm saying as a matter of, that sociologists have studied, that is not the kind of spirituality slash religiosity that gets handed down, in part because once you get outside the religious sphere uh, itself, once you get outside the sphere of orthodoxy, people tend not to have children to hand it down to. Mm-hmm. So this relationship between fertility and faith is very intense. It's an ironclad law of mm-hmm. demography, and I think it's a really interesting thing to think about. But once again, the question to be asked about religions is, do they reproduce themselves? And the answer is, the orthodox ones do. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, again about, again, about families breaking up, about divorce. I mean, it seems to me, I think the divorce rate has leveled off over the past 20 or 30 years at about 40% of, of marriages and in divorce in the United States. Maybe it's a little bit more, a little bit less. I don't really know. But it's certainly much, much higher than it was 100 years ago. And, and, yes. and, 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 you know, again, you don't have to be a great scholar of uh, the, the New Testament to know what Jesus says about divorce, and it's nothing very pleasant. Uh, so, so, yeah, exactly so. Yeah, um, and it's had a profound effect on people's religiosity, again, for a very human reason that I try to talk about in the book. People don't like to be told that they're wrong, and yeah. they don't like to be told that the people they love have done wrong. And I think that fact... Uh, puts up uh, an enormous barrier to giving the church a fair hearing for many people. Look, in this uh, world of ours, 50 years after the pill, you know, 40% divorce rate um, and uh, out-of-wedlock birth rate that's actually higher than that yeah, now, right. uh, you know, there's, there are a lot of people out there who are living in passive or overt defiance of the Christian moral code. And this is the problem that I think pastors and priests and theologians are really going to have to grapple with. Mm-hmm. The sexual revolution has been like a tidal wave. It washed across the Western world, and not only the Western world, and people have to see what they can retrieve a- after that. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it's interesting you mentioned that uh, sort of shift in values and also the change in what the notion of marriage means in the sense that it doesn't mean what it once meant. And, and I think that you know, I'm from the Midwest, and I used to teach at the University of Iowa. I spent a lot of time in the Midwest. Just, you know, people are pretty conservative out there. Um, and, you know, the people of Iowa don't really care about things like gay marriage. And I, I think largely it's because they don't think marriage is what it used to be. In other words, it's yeah. not, it just isn't that thing that it was. It wasn't the kind of bedrock of, of I, I don't know, of, of our civilization. It's now it's something very different. Um, it, it's It's almost something that I don't know, you do in a sort of fit of absent-mindedness or something, and you don't expect it to work, and uh, and it often doesn't, and most people just don't even need it. So if we want to have people of the same sex get married, well, that's fine too. Um, and again, I'm not opposed to that at all. Uh, but I, it just se- seems to me that we don't put marriage in the same category as we used to. We're not really excited about those extraordinarily firm commitments. You know, They are to each other, not to God. Right. Um, being a family member has come to be seen as an associational thing. It's it's not a matter of unchanging identity anymore. It's about something that you can do or undo. In the book, I give the example of whoever marries your sister. Once upon a time, he was your brother-in-law for life, right? Right. 
um, he was, in effect, your brother. Yeah. But now he is your brother-in-law only as long as the two of them decide to stay together. And if he goes away via divorce, um, or if they never marry in the first place, then any number of other brother-in-law or brother-in-law-like people could take his place. Yeah. This is new. This, this, this kind of fluidity in family life is new. And yeah. again, what I'm trying to get at is the effect that it has on the churches themselves directly. Yeah. So I have a lot of sympathy with the people who say, you know, marriage was in trouble long before uh, we got to the question of same-sex marriage. Yeah. I agree with that. I mean, I think marriage has been in trouble, uh, well, via human nature from the time yeah, it was invented, no, yeah, sure. right? Yeah, um, because of, of its impossibility, the yeah. impossibility of the claims that it makes. Yeah. But, but also, specifically, again, since the sexual revolution, since the pill um, arguably, I think inarguably, gave rise to the divorce rate and the, the fracturing of the family. Yeah, I mean um, it's, it's, that's what that's what we're up against. But right. it's good to have it out there and know what it is, and to know that, you know, the decline of Christianity is really not about one person after another sitting in a corner and scratching their head over the problem of theodicy or something like that. You know, this is part of what the new atheists put out there was the idea that well, there are all these problems with believing in God, and there are all these theological problems and all these rational problems. Marshall, I don't think that's how people decide these things. I think they decide no, them no. not one by one and all on their own, but I think they decide them in a community, beginning with the community of the family. Yeah. So I think you gave a very vivid example of how divorce can discourage uh, church attendance, and I've known people who similarly... Um, didn't really think that much about it, but just found themselves not really wanting to sit in the pews and be told how wonderful family life was when they were being, you know, going through a difficult time. Mm -hmm. um, so in lots of ways like this, we can think about how the fundamental Christian message about the family has been on a collision course with the way lots of us live now. And this is part of where secularization is coming from, yeah. which is very different from saying, you know, Someday everybody's just going to wise up and realize that there are so many overwhelming uh, intellectual problems with Christianity that they won't believe anymore. Mm -hmm. That is not what's going on out there. What's going on is something much more pedestrian and interesting. Yeah, no, I mean, I think I think you're absolutely right. It's a, it's a little bit like, I mean, I hate to say this, but it, it's a ridiculous enamel. It's a little bit like when your sports team in your local city kind of moves out to another, you know, it's like the Brooklyn, uh, the, the Brooklyn Dodgers. There are no more Brooklyn Dodgers fans because the, because the Dodgers are in L.A. now. So, you know, they don't, there can't be any more Brooklyn Dodgers fans because they're in L.A. And so they, they just sort of a couple of generations passed and there are no more Brooklyn Dodgers fans. And so people don't go to church and there are no more Lutherans anymore. You know, they've gone someplace else. Uh, and, 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 I, and, I, and I certainly t take your point about – I mean, it's funny because my wife and I have talked about starting to attend one or another church, or at least we did. Um, it may not be mine. It may not be uh, – she has a different uh, uh, faith of origin than I do. Um, but some church – because we feel like it's important to introduce our kids to, to th th this sort of community that talks about spiritual matters. Um, but I feel like, you know, if, if you are a single mother, you don't have time for that. Um, and, in, and, in, and in many cases, there just isn't the inclination to do it. There, it, it people right. don't, don't, don't think it offers them anything. Because, I mean, it's partially to do with the new atheists who just don't understand what religious, religion offers anybody. Uh, they, they don't get it. Um, and, and that may be the part of religious, maybe the fault of religious people for not explaining it to them of what you can get 
out of a, 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 what I would call a kind of spiritual program, spiritual practice. Um, uh, so, so, you know, you, you have to have to say that they're partially or we're partially at fault for that. But I just, you know, I think about many of my friends and things like this. They just, it never occurs to them to go to church. It just doesn't ever occur well, to them. Yeah, and this is another way in which family trends affect religious trends. So we know from survey data that if you are married and you're a man, you're more likely to go to church than if you're single. And we know that if you're a married man with children, you are far more likely to be found in church than if you are single. And the question is, why does that happen? Well, part of the reason is that when people have babies, they very often want to situate those babies in a moral community. And I've seen this with all my friends, Christian friends, Jewish friends, people who haven't darkened the doorstep of a religious institution in a long time tend to get a lot more interested once they're handed a baby because they want the child brought up with a message that is reinforced by a moral community. I mean, Durkheim understood this. This is part of what drives people to church. Having children drives people to church uh, for lots of reasons, I think. But so once again, if we live in a world with a falling birth rate where uh, a, a lot of people just don't have kids. In addition to what you mentioned, which is the single mom who's too busy for it, there's also the fact that people without them have a lot less reason to go to church in the first place. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's also part of this whole dynamic. Mm-hmm. And this is passed on generation to generation. This, I, I don't know what to call it, irreligiosity or whatever it is. It becomes kind of a pattern. Yeah, but then there's this other interesting phenomenon where, uh, and I, I cite this a demographer named Eric Kaufman, who's in England, who's done a wonderful uh, book about this. Um, the interesting thing that happens, though, is that over time, you get secular people not reproducing and religious people reproducing. So even as religiosity itself is squeezed and marginalized in the public square, you, looking down the road, are going to have a world where it is the children of the religious who are populating the earth because secular people have so few children. Mm-hmm. So down the road, one sees a more polarized society, um, or so I would predict based on those kind of projections. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. No, it is, it is interesting, and it is definitely the case that the birth rates among religious people are higher than um birth rates among a religious people. I'm thinking of also some particular communities that might provide sort of case studies. And uh, my uh, knowledge of Mormons and Mormonism is uh, not terribly deep, but it seems to me that they, um, they, they are quite religious people. They are church going and they have low rates of divorce and, uh, they have also low rates of various things, which we think are pretty nasty, which is to say things like uh, drug abuse and, and, and that kind of thing. Do, do you have any sort of, can you speculate as to how they've been successful in, in preserving these, these things? Yeah, again, I think it has to do with the fact that they've been pretty strict uh, when it comes to protecting the family. And the Mormons are also a case, by the way, in which the higher up you go on the socioeconomic ladder, the more likely people are to be serious churchgoers. Um, So that's another example that proves that point. But I think, you know, keeping to a more traditional understanding of what people can and can't do um, probably strongly helped by the famous pro- prohibitions of yeah. you know, alcohol, caffeine, and all the rest of it, um, have helped to keep Mormon families uh, intact and passing on the faith. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So uh, we're almost out of time, but I want to ask you this. You've alluded to it a little bit, and I can... 
I guess, and, and that is, what do you see as the so that you, the, the name of your book is "How the West Really Lost God." The, the assumption being that it has lost God, and we sort of admitted that into evidence. Um, and you've also mentioned these demographic disparities. That is, religious people reproduce more than uh, irreligious people. What would you say the future of a godless West is, or is there going to well, be a I godless West? Yeah, that is going to depend in large part on something that we did not get to talk about, but that's also a big player in all of this, which is the modern welfare state. The modern welfare state across the Western world simultaneously uh, bankrolls family fracture uh, and steps in as a family substitute. It's the welfare state that has put up these institutional substitutes for the family, in part because after the sexual revolution, somebody had to, so the welfare state stepped in and has done it very expensively and often, you know, in a way that has further hurt the family as an institution. But the question, Marshall, is what is going to happen if, down the road, for demographic and financial reasons, the modern welfare state can no longer deliver on its promise of cradle-to-grave family substitution? Mm-hmm. That is a big question, and it's hanging over the whole West. Because if the welfare state cannot do what it now professes to be able to do, one scenario would be that people will do what people do in times of adversity. They will look to their more organic connections. They will look to their families, their churches, their local immediate institutions to do the kind of thing that the welfare state has been doing expensively. So in a way that we see elsewhere in history that I touch on in the book, a time of adversity like that might actually breed religious revival because adversity is often where revival comes from. Mm -hmm. We saw this after 9-11 when for months on end, churches were full that were usually um, (laughs) empty all the time. Lots of people went to church after 9-11 and to synagogue after 9-11 who were not in the habit of doing those things because a shock that large generates big thoughts about transcendence and the meaning of things and the kind of stuff that you think about when you have a baby or when you have some other, you know, enormously important event in your life, a cancer diagnosis, something like that. So we see that adversity drives people to church. And for that reason, if the welfare state crashes and burns, as some economists are beginning to uh, say it will, then we could see, uh, paradoxically enough, the phoenix of the family arise from those ashes. Mm-hmm. And, um, That's one scenario. Right, and another scenario is that doesn't happen, that the welfare state continues to be able to cover uh, the costs, let's say, of um, child uh, rearing for people that don't, let's say, want to be married. And in yeah, that scenario, I mean, yeah. it's, it, yes, but I would have been more inclined toward that scenario before uh, the last couple of years when in Europe I've seen riots in the streets of Barcelona um, where there's a 30% unemployment rate, where in Greece um, people seem palpably afraid all the time. Again, huge unemployment rate. Hardly anyone can strike out on his own um, or think of forming families even if they wanted to. Uh, so this, this kind of pressure, I think, didn't exist before, and it makes me think that the darker scenarios about the future of the welfare state might be on to something. Mm-hmm. I see. Yeah, I want to come back to one thing before we close that you said earlier, and it just really struck me as very insightful, and that is about um, 
in-laws in divorced families. That's just a very peculiar thing, isn't it? Because once you're divorced, you're really no longer a member of the family. You were a member of the family, now you're not. Just instantly. And not only you, but everyone you're related to. Yeah, that's just amazing. Like, you know, you have this wedding and joining families, and then that's it. (laughs) And then you're not, and then it's, yeah, it's a kind of, we live unthinkingly with a kind of familial amputation that didn't exist before. You know, before, you have babies and lots of them would die at birth. Um, Before, you'd have husbands and, you know, they'd be killed in wars or other stupid things that guys do. Um, (laughs) You know, there were, there's always been pressures on the family, but now we have the pressure of an individualism that says, I can rewrite this anytime I want. I can hit rewind and uh, do it all over again. And you're right. What it creates is this whole world that we live in of these kind of familial ghosts, people who were once part of our lives and aren't anymore. And I don't think humanity has figured out what to do about that. I, I know I haven't, yeah. but we're all affected by it one way and another. Yeah, no, it is a, it's a peculiar thing, and I just had never really thought about it before, because the fiction is, of course, you unite these families, so they'll be supportive and work together and things like this, and then, of course, they don't. I mean, you know, and it, it's funny because it goes further than that. You talk about the welfare state. I mean, given the fact that people really um, are not required to take care of their uh, elderly parents anymore, um, then you sort of have the truncation of that. They can have children out of wedlock, and the state, if their single mother, will pay for those children – um, you can easily part a family if you want. I mean, it just seems to me like there are lots of ways in which we've said it's okay to uh, it's okay to to break up families, and we will subsidize it. Yes, but I wouldn't write the um, the epitaph for the family quite yet, because we have seen in other places and times, and I'm relying on the work of a great sociologist, Carl Zimmerman, here that family revival. It's like religious revival. It comes and goes in history. Mm-hmm. So the people who have said the disappearance of Christianity was inevitable have been proved wrong time and again. As a matter of fact, we had a great religious revival right after um, the the years of World War II, and it was pan-Western. This is also something a lot of people don't know. Across the Western world, there was a family, uh, I'm sorry, a religious boom in tandem, of course, with a baby boom. So here again, we see the way these two things, the family and the church, go together in a a way that I think is best described as a double helix, Mm -hmm. um, with each side relying on the other side. Mm -hmm. So it's happened before. um, We've seen revival in both institutions before, including in very unexpected places. And for that reason, um, I think smart money would be on it happening again. Yeah. I guess another thing is is that I'm I'm trying to imagine what an uh, somebody who wasn't so sympathetic to your argument might say, and that is that this, uh, that the decline in religion and in religious uh, rules and the decline of the family as a kind of, um, uh, the opponent would put it as a kind of cage, has made us very free. That is, we, we, are, we are now uh, masters of our own fate in a way that we never were before, and that's a good thing. How would you respond to that? I would say that the evidence from the walking wounded of this great experiment um, is just beginning to come in. And I mean, I do mean to say like this um, sociological research on things like what are the children of divorce like as adults is just beginning to come in, uh, let alone cutting edge experiments like uh, maternal surrogacy, you know, the, the creation of a baby in a womb for hire 
we're just starting to hear from some of those people about what it feels like to be brought into the world and purposely deprived of a mother or father. So this experiment, you know, although it's been the background to our lifetimes, uh, this experiment in uh, new forms of family life since the sexual revolution, um, even though we think it's a sort of permanent feature of the landscape, it's actually pretty new by the sweep of, of all of human history. Mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. pretty new that we've been living in these uh, strange, atomized ways. In Sweden right now, half the households are one-person households. People don't even live in families. Now, you know if you've ever had a puppy that mammals are social creatures. So, again, the evidence of what that is going to do down the road or what, whether people of the future will look back on things like that and say, what were they thinking, um, this is all something that could happen. Yeah, yeah, that's fascinating. Well, um, I really enjoyed your book, Mary. We've been talking with Mary Eberstadt about her book, How the West Really Lost God. It's been a great discussion, and I want to thank you for being on the show. I also want to ask you our traditional final question on the New Books Network, and that is, Mary, what are you working on now? Oh, thank you. I wish I had something else to promote, but I don't. The truth is I'm still uh, working on the the issues that are mapped in the book, because Mm -hmm. I think these are evergreen and really interesting questions. Mm-hmm. Well, they certainly are. And you've, you've really put your finger on something here. It's something that I, fi- I, I find, you know, again, it, it's almost the story of, it's the story of, of my cohort, I guess I would say. Many, many, you know, I, I went through all of the things that you, you d- describe. And so it was interesting to see that they're part of broader, broader trends. I think a lot of people should read this book. It's actually uh, totally fascinating. So, uh, Mary, I want to thank you for being on the show. First of all. Oh, thanks for having me, Marshall. Absolutely. And I want to thank everybody for listening to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor in chief. I hope everybody has a great week. 